my biggest tip is consistency. The weekend warrior, it's not a great formula. The number one risk factor around lower back pain is called a lack of exercise. Every adult should do physical activity and the postpartum phase isn't any different to that. For Australia's ageing population, in fact for all Australians, we're increasingly interested in how we can live longer lives. But for my mum who plays tennis every week and my dad who loves the garden, they're far more interested in their health span than they are their lifespan. My name's Tim Detman. I'm a physiotherapist at Keyser Australia and this is our podcast, Healthy to 100. In this podcast, you'll learn two things. You'll learn from scientists about what you need to do to live long, healthy lives and avoid injury and illness. And secondly, you'll learn from famous Australians and older athletes about what they're doing to stay active in their later years. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Healthy to 100. We had such a good start to this podcast last year, recording a number of pilot episodes. And the response that we got from both Keyser clients and members of the general public was overwhelmingly positive. So we're bringing back the podcast in 2023. And our goal this year is to give you content that's as timely as possible. So as we come into January, the most timely podcast topic that we could come up with was tennis. So you can expect this type of content from us throughout the year as different activities come up or different problems associated with times of the year, all of which will still be aimed at trying to help as many people as possible live active and healthy lives to reach 100. So the first podcast episode today is with a physiotherapist named Serafin Alvarez. And Serafin works at Keyser, uh, but Serafin's background is that he was both a WTA and ATP tour physio. Uh, he was looking after ATP t- players um, for a bit over six years. And so he brings a really interesting perspective on injuries such as tennis elbow. And we just have so many people come through our doors asking questions about tennis elbow, whether it be related to tennis or in fact actually related to their typing or the fact that they're working from home off a terrible desk setup, which I can't believe in 2023, given we've been a couple of years through this pandemic, but I digress. Seraphin and I had an awesome conversation about some of the common causes, some of the misconceptions about tennis elbow. So I hope that you really enjoy this podcast. And let me start by saying if you've got any ideas or you've got any specific requests for podcast episodes this year, just comment on our socials, send us through an email, and we will do our best to find an expert in that area. So welcome back, and hopefully you all get a chance to get to the Australian Open in the next couple of weeks as well. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Healthy to 100. We are fast approaching my favourite time of year in Melbourne, and that is the beginning of the Australian Open. 
I love nothing more than buying the ve- the best value ticket in Australian sport, getting a ground pass, heading down and watching the world's best um, at Rod Laver Arena or on the show courts. So today we're going to cover off uh, a topic that's really, really popular amongst all of our clients. And the topic today is tennis elbow. And I'm really lucky to be joined by Serafin Alvarez. Serafin is a physiotherapist at Keyser, but also comes with a really strong tennis background. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Serafin. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm glad to be here with you. Now, uh, firstly, um, how close was I on the pronunciation of your name, Serafin? I would say that was pretty good, Tim. Uh, despite your seven minutes of practice before, uh, I, I think you did pretty well. <laughs> we, did discuss, we did discuss not mentioning my seven minutes of practice, and you've thrown me under the bus already. So uh, expect me to do the same in return. Now, Serafin, you're a physiotherapist at, at Kieser in Malvern, but you come with a big tennis background. So before we kick off, can you tell us a little bit uh, about your tennis history? Yeah, so um, I ended up working in tennis almost by accident, to be honest. Um, I've never played tennis myself. Um, I, When I was growing up, I was doing judo. That was my sport. And um, I started physiotherapy in, in Madrid. I finished in like 2007. And one of the professors that I had in in uni um, is the head of the medical services in the in the uh, tournament in Madrid, and um, I don't know he must have seen something in me or he was just desperately in need for volunteers to to help him in the in the tournament, and um, he asked me if I wanted to join the team as a volunteer. So for a couple of years I was working in the in the Madrid event without getting paid, uh, but for me you know 20 years old freshly out of juni it was the best thing ever um i got to meet all the players i got to treat some of them um i think all the players that i treated uh back in those days are now retired uh, <laughs> no, hopefully not because of what i did um, and um yeah that that led to um eventually working in the madrid tournament like getting paid for it and um eventually treating one player traveling with with that player and, and another player more for a few months and you know the the ball kept ru- um, uh, rolling and I ended up working on the tennis tour uh, for like seven years uh, during that time I worked with different players uh, I always <laughs> there's a, a Brazilian player uh, if he ever listens to this he'll know who he is um, that used to say that the relationship between a tennis player and a coach or a physio is like marriage, but without sex, because you end up spending a whole lot of time together. But um, you know, you, you need to. It's a it's a very sort of like intimate relationship in the sense that you spend a lot of time of your year together. You basically live together, um, but at the same time, it's a professional relationship. So sometimes those relationships you know, get wasted or, or, you know, get to an end and then you need to split your ways and um, find a different alternative. That happened a couple of times. So, Seraphim, seven years um, on the on the tour looking after tennis players, does that mean that all of your clients that you see today as a physio are, are all tennis players of slightly different um, professionalism than what you looked after before? That, 
Look, when I started working at Kisa, I think that was one of my employer's uh, concerns that I was going to be bored if I was not treating tennis players, and it couldn't be more, you know, farther away from that. I was, I wouldn't say running away from or escaping from, but I was definitely done with with professional sport. Uh, prior to working in, in tennis, I had worked with with soccer in a professional level as well, and I I think I had my share. And I really, really enjoy working with, you know, regular people just like you and I who are, well, you're kind of a professional athlete, I should say, actually, after your last marathon. Um, but, uh, don't, you know, don't, don't try and be nice to me now after that little clip that you gave me to start I off with. We're even now. I think we're even. Uh, but yes, I enjoy a lot working with regular people. And I'll say, you know, these days, most of my patients are not, uh, you know, elite tennis players or anything like that. Some of them do play tennis. Um, I'll say, yeah, a fair bit of them play tennis. But to a recreational level, I had a couple of, of patients who play on a, you know, pen and competitions and things like that, but obviously not to the extent that I was used to during those seven years. So, Seraphin, I could ask you all to hear about your experience uh, on the tour and working with professionals. So I promise one more question, and then we're going to go deep on uh, Tennis Elbow, and you're going to teach me all about that. Um, favorite tournament in the world uh, to attend uh, as a physio, which one? Um, yeah, that's a, very, that's a very easy one, and it's going, to, it's going to sound a little bit corny because, you know, we're in Melbourne, but... You can ask around to all the tennis players and, and their entourage, let's say, uh, and 90% of them will say the Australian Open is their favorite tournament, and it's definitely mine. I was always looking forward to start the year uh, coming down under, and um, as a matter of fact, I do live here now, being from Spain, so I think that means something. Yeah, that's great news. Every uh, every Melbourneians just giving themselves a pat on the back as they yeah. listen to this. So, Seraphin, the topic I want to talk to you today about is tennis elbow. It's something that I see a lot uh, as a physio. It's a really common presentation for people uh, walking in the doors of Kizar. And I also think it's probably one of the topics most commonly diagnosed by Dr. Google. And that scares me. And so what we're going to do today is work through uh, the facts and the research around tennis elbow and try and dispel some of the myths that have probably been created uh, by Dr. Google. So, mate, let's start with the basics. Um, what is tennis elbow? Okay. Um, I'll go even one step farther back. I will say, first of all, I'm not 100% happy with the uh, denomination or the name of the injury itself. I think tennis elbow, um, it's a little bit too unspecific and wide. I prefer to call it lateral epicondylopathy or epicondylalgia, meaning that you have pain in a very particular spot in the elbow. And that is already quite general and not very specific, but at the same time, it determines one injury and one injury in particular. Tennis elbow is just a name that was given to pain in the lateral aspect of the elbow. Um, but at the same time, most tennis players, and I'm sure that we're going to touch base on this later on, but most tennis players these days, at least most professional tennis players these days, don't ever develop tennis elbow. If anything, they develop 
golfer's elbow. Uh, and I would like to ask someone working with golfers if golfers ever get golfer's elbow. <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that later. But yeah, basically going back to your question, tennis elbow or lateral epicondylopathy, it's an overload injury of a set of, of tendons that attach in the lateral aspect of the elbow and regularly happens because of an overuse of that common tendon. Is the okay, tendon so of the of the extensor of the wrist and fingers. Okay, so let's just a little bit of clarity for everyone listening. They <clears throat> probably know what tennis elbow is or probably know the area, but uh, what Seraphin's describing in lateral epicondylopathy is that if you if you stand up and you point your with your hands down by your side and you point your palms forwards, the lateral aspect would be the outside aspect of your elbow. And the epicondyle um, is the bony part of your elbow. So if you feel for the outside um, bony part of your elbow, that's the epicondyle. And it's that area um, that is commonly associated with the pain of tennis elbow. And golfer's elbow, which could be called medial epicondylopathy, um, is pain on the inside. So maybe, Seraphin, we could just give a little bit of background about, although they're not completely accurate, those terms, just a bit of an idea of um, of why they've been named that, because there yeah. must be something behind it. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I think it responds to, a, you know, a, a very common presentation amongst tennis players. Um, due to the mechanics of basically gripping the racket and, and playing a forehand. Um, when you, well, if you imagine that you're gripping your racket and you're sort of like loading the, the racket to prepare for the shot, you have to, um, your wrist has to go into a little bit of extension to, to kind of like use gravity to, to load the racket. And then as you hit the ball, the ball is going to make the racket vibrate, but you still need to keep sort of like holding firmly onto the uh, racket's grip and that vibration is going to go straight into your elbow. All that in some cases is going to exceed the loading capacity of that tendon and that is going to create a, a cascade of effects in the tendon that is going to end up in pain and dysfunction. That will be sort of like the short answer. So because it was a very common presentation among tennis players, it was called tennis elbow. The same way that, you know, there's a, a swimmer's shoulder or jumper's knee, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be a jumper in order to have jumper's knee or a tennis player to have tennis elbow. Matter of fact, I will say that these days, uh, more people develop tennis elbow because they spend a lot of time in their desks working with their mouse, uh, with their mice. Um, or you know, or typing on the computer rather than playing tennis. It's a it's a really good point, Seraphim. The the only time that I've ever developed tennis elbow type symptoms uh, is when doing a lot of hands on work as a physio. So it was absolutely absolutely nothing to do with tennis at the time. So, but if someone did have tennis elbow, what symptoms might they expect? Like what might they feel? And then from our perspective as clinicians. Uh, what 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 might we look at for diagnosis of it? In most of the cases, when they present with a with a uh, with tennis elbow, they're going to report that they experience pain in the the lateral epicondyle, that that, that bony segment that you have described before, um, and it's pain 
quite uh, specific, like right on the bony aspect. Um, it's not pain in the muscle itself. It's more like towards the tendon or the, the union between the muscle and the bone, right? Um, it's pain that is quite uh, acute and lacerating. It feels almost like, like an itch uh, within the tendon. And it's going to be exacerbated when you play tennis, for instance, or when you do the the uh, the mechanical uh, movement that is leading to that injury. It might, as I said before, it might be just you know uh, working around with your mouse or playing tennis, or sometimes if it's quite advanced, even uh, or severe, even holding a, a pan. Sometimes they they describe it as you know when I hold something heavy. Uh, it hurts, or when I even hold a, a glass full of water, something like that, that can hurt. I think that's. I think they're really good examples. Like, I think back to a number of my patients with these symptoms, and it's often gripping-related activities. Pans is a great one. Anyone using tools, um, you know, tra- tradespeople can be susceptible to it as well. And, and then, point, then, Seraphim, um, what's um, what would you expect to see as a physio um, for someone who's got tennis elbow what what signs and symptoms do you see well again on palpation i think palpation in this case is very very useful because you're going to be able to differentiate whether what they have is an overload of the muscles and you know the muscles are just a little bit irritated because they play too much tennis or they did too much of any activity screw driving for instance it's it's a very good example um now that you mentioned tradies uh, that happens a lot of a lot of times um, or with a you know regular um, person at home who's you know has made a trip to ikea and they're building up something and they end up but we could rename it ikea elbow that's a great that's a 100%. great suggestion in 2023 i don't know what sweets are going to think about that but uh yeah we can try uh <laughs> but yes uh that is a you know a very common presentation and then Palpation can be very useful because it tells you whether the pain is or, or the problems are located in the muscle or in the actual tendon. Um, irritability or hypersensitivity in the surrounding of the tendon is going to be uh, a very good sign. There are a couple of clinical uh, tests that you can that you can do to try to see whether, um, for instance, extension of the wrist or extensor extension of the fingers in which finger in particular elicits the pain. That is going to be useful for us as clinicians. Probably a little bit too technical for the scope of this uh, chat, but um, but all those things are going to be useful. You also have to rule out other surrounding muscles problems, like for instance the triceps can be a, a you know uh, somehow related. Uh, you also need to rule out other issues like a potential um, uh, hairline fracture or stress fracture or any sort of uh, bony problem in that area, but that will be uh, pretty much all you want to see when you see one of these injuries. Seraphin, you're right. You and I could get caught up on diagnosis, and I find it really interesting, and I'd love to talk about it, but I tell you what our clients want to hear is they've got tennis elbow, they've got pain on the lateral aspect of their epicondyle, and they just want to know how to treat it. So let's go next into treatment, and Mm -hmm. then I definitely want to cover off prevention because, as always, um, on this podcast, we're trying to give people, yes, short-term strategies to help them get back on the court or get back playing golf or whatever it is, but also long-term prevention. So if I've got that pain, I've played too much tennis, 
It's week two of the Australian Open, and like every other Aussie, I think I'm a tennis player now. And I've played too much tennis in the last seven days. I've got a flare-up of lateral epicondyle pain. What do I do to treat it? Okay. I will say if you were one of my patients and you come with that presentation, the first thing I will say to you is you're very lucky, or we both are very lucky, that you made the decision to come here so early on. Because... This doesn't necessarily just apply to tennis elbow, but applies to any tendinopathy or any uh, injury of any tendon. But there are several stages of deterioration or or aggravation to a tendon. And if you start treating a tendinopathy early on, when it's still in the, let's say, acute phase, it's relatively easy to, um, you know, to, to cope with the symptoms and uh, settle down the inflammation and go back to the normal loading capacity of that tendon, normal as understood as, you know, what you had before you flare it up. If you let it go, which is what happens in most of the cases, and, and, and this is the bulk of the patients I see coming with tennis elbow, the presentation is more like, oh, I did exactly what you described, but then I kept playing because it will get better at times. And, uh, and then it will flare up again and it will get better. And I did that for like two months. And now it's at the point in which I hold a, gra- a glass of full of water and it hurts. Now, if we were treating a patient like the one you described, what you're going to do is relatively simple. Your physio is going to give you some modalities to lead with the symptoms or to uh, treat the symptoms that you're currently experiencing. So basically to diminish the pain level. And then it's going to give you an exercise program to allow the tendon to regain normal loading capacity. If you are in a more severe state, the plan is going to be relatively similar, but it's going to take a whole lot more. The the way I describe it to patients is, it took you two months to do all that damage to your tendon. You cannot expect to sort of like clear everything away within one or two weeks. It's probably going to take you several weeks worth of treatment and treatment meaning more than anything, uh, exercise. I I always describe this injury as having two two fronts. One of them is the symptoms and the other one is the origin of the problem or what's causing the problem. Dealing with the symptoms is relatively easy. As I said, several modalities, hands-on treatment, massage, you know, several other things can be useful, but that's only, I'm just making this percentage out, but it's only 10% of it. 90% of it, it's going to be on the patient's uh, side of the fence, and it's them uh, sticking to a train uh, a training program or a treatment program that involves exercises that are going to allow the tendon to regain normal loading capacity. That's a really tough thing for people to understand Seraphine, isn't it? I, as soon as I have a uh, a tendon patient, I tell all of my tendon patients that tendons take twelve weeks, mm. and that's something that I reinforce every single session. But it's it is hard for someone to understand that. Hey, I've got all of this pain, and maybe in a week or two that pain's gone away. But what you're saying is that the problem's going to come back unless they do something about or do some type of exercise program. Yeah, 100%. Um, and if if that person has experienced, um, you know, tennis elbow or, as I said, any other tendinopathy before for a long time, they will be used to the feeling of 
I play, at the beginning I don't have any pain. As I keep playing, the pain starts gradually increasing. Eventually, they might even reach a point in which pain starts decreasing while they're playing. But then when they finish, pain is going to spike and it's going to be quite high. A few days later, it's going to start going down again, and they're going to go to almost like a ballet in which pain is quite manageable. And then they will start the whole cycle again. But this time, the threshold is a little bit higher, and it's going to be like this all the time. So, um, yeah, it's very, very important for a patient suffering from this injury to understand that um, the more severe the, the tendinopathy is, the more attention they need to pay to it. And... I will even go farther than, than you with the 12 weeks. I will say that a, a proper tendinopathy is going to take somewhere between six to 12 months to fully, fully heal. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to be experiencing pain and, and discomfort for such a long time, but the structure, like the, the, the internal uh, collagen matrix of the tendon is probably not going to be fully repaired until six to 12 months after they start paying attention to the treatment. You're saying I need to change my 12-week tendon to a 26-week tendon. You can keep the 12-week, but just uh, <laughs> just make make sure that they keep doing their exercises for a long time after that. I'm gonna for the rest of this podcast, I'm gonna refer to it as a 26-week tendon because I think it's it, it is so good for patients to to understand that that hey, we can absolutely get you back playing tennis, but when we get you back playing tennis, I'm just going to stop there. We want to keep you playing tennis. And, and that is the theme for this podcast of how do we keep you doing it? Like not how do we keep you getting injured? That's it's how do we prevent it? So you've talked a bit about exercise. Can you tell me a little bit about what that looks like? And is it just elbow exercise or are you talking shoulder and thoracic spine exercise as well? Can you break that down a bit for me, Sarah? I'm a huge advocate for something that very few, or at least in my experience, very few people do, at least very few amateur tennis players do, which is warm-up. Um, I think warm-up is one of the most important things that you could ever do, not just for tennis, but for any physical activity. Um, I believe that a good warm-up should have several different phases. It doesn't need to be excessively long, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes, but a good warm-up is going to be paramount when it comes to prevention of injuries. Um, you know, we, we we can do a whole new podcast about uh, warm-up, and I'm very happy to do it. I, I, warm-up is a, a topic that I absolutely adore. But um, yeah, basically doing some specific exercises, particularly if you have had an injury like tennis elbow or golfer's elbow before, doing some exercises in which you load the tendon, doing some extensions of the wrist or flexions of the wrist, using an elastic band, for instance, uh, which is something uh, inexpensive, lightweight, easy to travel with, easy to have in your in your um, tennis uh, bag or, 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 you know, with your the rest of your gear. It's very, very useful. Um, as I said, you know, putting your, your forearm on top of your your thigh and just doing some flexions and extensions of uh, of the wrist can be a lifesaver when it comes to preventing um, injuries like this. On top of the warm-up, obviously having a healthy tendon around the elbow, it's going to be one of the most important things. And that involves doing some workouts. Kisa is a fantastic source uh, of, of exercise in that sense. We have plenty of machines that you can use to strengthen the uh, wrist flexors and wrist extensors, uh, all the H machines pretty much, and then some of the other 
particularly pulling machines like C7, C3, C2 are going to be very, very useful for that uh, topic. Uh, but of course, if someone listening uh, this podcast is interested in, in getting more exercises for the prevention or the treatment of their tennis elbow, I'm sure that they can go to any of their uh, physiotherapist at Kisa and they will give them a lot of guidance. So, Sarah, what you're saying is that there's kind of two types of exercise. There's something that you would do in the warm-up immediately before a game, which is about uh, warming the tissue up, getting some blood flow, you know, not, not stretching it, but activating that muscle, and that's kind of one type of exercise. And then the other one is exercise that you would do in between games, as in like during the week in between games, to try and build the capacity of that tendon and or that joint is that what is that the, the differentiation you're making yes 100 percent um the warm-up is is just a mean to get ready for what's coming for the future for the physical activity that is about to happen and the 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 training is you know what you will do at a, at a normal workout at kisa you're just trying to increase the loading capacity of all your uh well in this case, tendons, but also your bones, your muscles in, in your body. One analogy that I like to use when it comes to tendon uh, tendinopathies or tendon problems, it's if you have an old car and it's a scorching Aussie day and you're just, you know, driving through and the, the, the oil starts to heat up, eventually you're going to have to stop. Otherwise, your car is going to break, right? Now, that is similar to what happens in the tendon. Tendon have a certain loading capacity. If you just keep using it, eventually it's going to get injured. Now, going back to the uh, analogy of the car, the car normally has like a blinker that is going to tell you when the heat is a little bit too hot. And if you stop in the shade and you let it cool down, you can keep going. The same thing happens with the tendon. So if you let it cool down, it's going to sort of like, uh, yeah, cool down and then you're going to uh, be allowed to do a little bit more work. However, unfortunately, we don't have a blinker that tells us when we have reached that loading capacity. So the higher our loading capacity is, the better, because when we do get an alert, it's going to be pain. And that means that it's a little bit too late. We already made some damage to the tendon. I think that oil light or temperature analogy is a really good one. So that the, the second type of exercise that you're talking about the strength-based exercise would increase that threshold point. And that's why you and I are saying this is a 26-week tendon, is that every week you want to slowly increase that threshold point. 100%. That is correct. So, Sarah, that gives a really good understanding of kind of a diagnosis of tennis elbow and and what we need to do from a treatment point of view definitely one of the questions we're going to get asked when we post this on social media is going to be which racket do i use which grip do i use do i need a vibration dampener like talk, talk me through equipment what effect that might have okay um that is a very very complex in nature question uh, because there are so many rackets available so many different strings uh, obviously tension of the string is going to play a huge uh, role uh, in that equation um, i will say that this is a question that has to be addressed to each individual um, the racket itself is probably not going to be the problem as long as you have the capacity to play with that racket what i mean is there are some heavier and lighter rackets. 
if you're someone 40 kilos and your strength is say 10 out of 100 you cannot play with a racket that weighs 350 grams which you know if you don't know much about rackets and all of that it's kind of heavy because it's going to be way too heavy for you um you can always play with a lighter racket uh, if you're someone stronger but then you need to level level out uh, whether you want more power more control so it's probably a question both for your physio and most importantly for your coach um, and then what i will suggest to pretty much everybody is don't commit to just one racket in most of the pro shops in any tennis club they normally have several tennis rackets try to play with them for a little while see which one fits you better and then once you find the one that sort of like fits your capacity and and your liking then commit to that one um but yeah and and when it comes to the grip again different grips have different pros and cons um we we could be talking about that for a long long time but uh back in the 70s uh, people used to play with a very flat grip uh just because rackets were were mostly made out of wood and uh, they couldn't be strung so tightly the moment that the materials changed and uh, you know uh, rackets made out of graphite and titanium and aluminum and all sorts of materials start to pop up they could be strung a lot more tightly which allowed for more control and then the grip changed people started to play with the racket with a more like what we call western grip which allows you to top spin the ball a lot more and that's when the professional tennis players stopped developing tennis elbow and started developing golfer's elbow. So it was due to a mechanical change, and the mechanical change was due to a technological advancement. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. I think that's really good advice that equipment is so specific to the individual. I think that, that ballpark figure that you, you gave, if, if, you're, if you're playing with a heavy racket, it is one of the things that we would be really a coach or a physio would be really concerned about my racket has gone like my previous one was about 325 grams i think i've dropped it down to 295 and it makes such a big difference so they're not it's not a black and white rule that everything it has to be under 300 grams but as a bit of a guideline you will be able to find um on the throats of your racket for most of them it will have a weight and if you're playing with a racket that's 330 grams plus, it is a relatively heavy racket. Um, and that's definitely something that you want to chat to your coach and or your physio about. But if you've got tennis elbow and you get it from tennis, I would turn up to your physio appointment with your tennis racket because it's part of the discussion that you want to have with the physio. Do you think that's fair advice, Sierra? It is 100% fair advice. I couldn't agree more to that. Um, there are a million other things that we uh, haven't discussed, like for instance, the size of the grip, which is, you know, paramount when it comes to to developing tennis elbow. Uh, obviously, if you have a small hand and a huge width of your grip, that is going to play a massive amount of load in your tendon, which is going to probably lead to more damage in that tendon, and therefore your loading capacity is going to be reached earlier so you're going to heat up the oil on the engine a lot faster so th there are several uh factors like that that need to be factored in and uh bringing the racket to your appointment i think it's going to be of massive help for your clinician yeah i think that's um 
it's good advice. I wonder if you've got advice about technique. Like, what's the role of the physio versus the coach in technique, Sarah? And this might be my last question. Um, I reckon. Um, I always I always walk on eggshells when it comes to providing advice, um, or providing technical advice for sports in general and for tennis in particular, because I've worked for so many years in tennis, people ask me very often. I'm not by any means an expert in tennis racket. Um, I mean, sorry, in tennis technique. And I think that is a question that definitely a tennis coach should address. However, I might say uh, physiotherapists are experts in biomechanics and human biomechanics. And, um, you know, sometimes seeing something with a different set of eyes, like the, the physiotherapist's eyes, in combination with the coach's eyes, can be better than the sum of things. So um, I, I think, um, you know, having a physio that communicates with your tennis coach and between the two of them give you the proper advice when it comes to your technique, it's the best way to go in this case. But that's the key, isn't it? When you, If you've got tennis elbow and it's from tennis, you should come into your physio appointment with your tennis racket and your coach's phone number. Because yeah. <laughs> if you see a physio that doesn't want to chat to your coach, you're seeing the wrong physio. And if they work in, if they work in a Kieser environment, let us know. But the Kieser physios um, will call the golf pro or they will call the tennis coach straight away because that collaboration is what gets people good results because it's basically like you working on the tour working really close with the coach being in that marriage that you described at the start it should be exactly the same for my mum who's playing midweek tennis uh you know up in macedon once a week like there should be some uh, collaboration this is something that we have like you and i have discussed before this podcast but um Tennis injuries in professionals are not different to the injury that you or I might have. The only difference is the time frame. Uh, a, a tennis professional is going to want to recover as fast as possible. And normally we are a little bit more slack in that because we don't need to play the Australian Open in two weeks. Um, but apart from that, I think the treatment and the care should be exactly the same as with a professional. So yes, of course, the physio should call the tennis coach. And, um, and I mean, I'm... I know that I am more than happy to do it. Uh, I, I love talking to tennis coaches and they normally appreciate the call and, and the fact that you're caring about their client or the patient. So, Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, to finish on, Sarah, that the collaboration between patient, physio and coach is, is the way that you get the best result. And, and, and I'll even extend that to say if a patient comes to me and they, they don't have a coach and I'll often recommend, you know, at least a couple of technique related sessions so that we can rule out that technique being a, a major issue. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience uh, and all of your knowledge today, Seraphine. I've written down another five podcast episodes that I'm going to tag you into. But mate, my last question for today is, are you going, it's the 10th of January now, we'll probably release this podcast in a few days. Are you going along to the Australian Open? I am going to be there as much as I can. Uh, I still have a, a couple of uh, people that I used to work with playing. Uh, and I also know a lot of uh, physios and coaches that are going to be heading down. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be going, I'll be enjoying just as anybody else. Right, well, enjoy what I think is probably the best uh, event on the Australian sporting calendar. And thanks again for contributing your knowledge to the podcast today. 
Thank you, Tim.